Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at Beedratty. It is uh, fall. I am going to be on the ground at the Ryder Cup next week, and I see some cooler temperatures uh, in the forecast. So one new item that I just got, we, uh, we gave them out at our most recent event at White Bear Yacht Club, the Regatta. And we have a new item that's going in the pro shop uh, with this with a with a logo on it uh, is the Dratty Sport Blair Half Sip. Uh, I believe it's named after Zach Blair. I'm not I'm not positive. It could be another Blair. It could be a, a first name Blair. I'm not sure. But anyways, this is a uh, a new half sip that is uh, in the line for Beat Dratty this fall. It is awesome. It's a it's that sport material that uh, everybody knows, but it's done dratty way, uh, which is it's got a unique feel that differentiates it from a lot of the sport materials that you feel like you're putting like a bag over yourself. This uh, this material it's really soft, breathable, um, but it's warm, and it's it's a great fit. It's it's I'd say it's a little bit snugger than uh, most dratties. So if you're kind of in between sizes, size up. But it is a great piece, and uh, I can't wait for to have some of them in the shop. Of course, you can buy this on BeDratty.com today. You can use the code TFE25 for 25% off and uh, get ready for fall ball in most of the north uh, part of the states. So check out that Dratty Sport uh, Blair Half Zip, and thank you to BeDratty for all the support this year. Today's episode is with the CEO of the USGA, the new CEO of the USGA, Mike Wan. Uh, We have talked to Mike in the past when he was the commissioner of the LPGA. Uh, We interviewed Mike this week at Chicago Golf Club, one of the five founding clubs of the USGA, and uh, had a chat that centered around championship venues, municipal golf, and of course, distance. So without further ado... Here is the new CEO of the USGA, Mike Wan. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Mike, we're here at uh, Chicago Golf, one of the founding five clubs of the USGA. Uh, I'm curious. I, I know you've been digging into the history of the USGA, and these clubs were fundamental in, in getting the USGA started. What do you think their role is now in American golf? You know, first, let me take the first part of your question. So when I got to the USGA, I went over to the museum, I think on my second day, and I asked for a little tour of, you know, through the history. And... Um, in the museum hangs the first page of the original constitution written by the five clubs. And I got to tell you, as a Chicagoan, as a Naperville guy to see Chicago golf club, um, it hit me. And when today, when I got to the club in their lobby, their historian said to me, this is the only place this is on display. And it's a, it's a, it's the same thing. It's the first page. And I'm like, it's not the only place it's on display. And what I did from the museum is I asked the museum 
to, um, to take a picture of that page. I had it blown up and framed and now it hangs in my office because I want everybody who walks into my office to return to how the USJ was originally formed in 1894. You know, I started a tournament at the LPGA called the Founders because I wanted our members, my staff, my board, young girls to remember like where the roots of the, of the LPGA are. And this place where we're sitting in Chicago, this is the roots of the USJ. So um, I think these clubs understood their responsibility for the future of this game before we did. And so I said to them, I feel a responsibility back to them and I hope they still feel it to us that this was formed to create national championships. It was formed to create common governance and rules. And it was formed to make sure golf was better 30 years from the time they signed the document. Now it's 130 years, but I think we all still have the same responsibility, you know, to create championships where the best can play and showcase to uh, create governance where, whereby we can all play under the same set of rules. And most importantly, to make sure that our kids' kids have a better game than, than we do. And I, I don't think anything's changed since 1894. Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, uh, the founder here, Stevie McDonald, was a big uh, part of the founding of the USGA because, you know, his many rules uh, controversies were what was spurned, we need to have an ideal set of rules. You know, it might have been a sore loser, but more more so he needed the rules. So Same thing know. might be true for the uh, for the U.S. amateur. I think uh, a few people were calling it their national amateur championship, and he didn't win those first two. So yeah. we decided those two weren't weren't uh, weren't official. Yeah. So let's make sure we create one official. And then, of course, I think in the third amateur played, he won. So that one was now official. Mm-hmm. So with these, with these clubs, obviously, they... Um, you know they founded it. I'm I we we're going to see the country club next year as a you know hosting a national championship. You got Shinnecock national championship. You know Newport's had national championships. Is that kind of you know obviously the historical aspect a big part of them becoming more championship courses or do they have? a fundamental role other than just those are the clubs that started the USGA. Yeah, I wouldn't say that, the, you know, we sit around the USGA and talk about the five courses and what things are we going to do with the five courses. But we're like anybody else. I mean, we're like any other business. You respect that. Like when the NHL talks about the founding clubs and Chicago, you know, gets the respect there too. It's uh, It matters, your roots. It matters where you started. And the fact that we can have championships at these at these uh, facilities um, – uh, is cool. Um, it's not mandatory. I don't think we, I don't think that that has to take place, but, uh, I think there's only a few clubs that can take the pride, the fact that they, that they envisioned the USGA before the USGA did. And I think as a result, there's, um, there's always going to be something special between us and them. I mean, and when I walked onto this property, um, I felt the history, not just of this property, but I felt the history of the, of the foresight, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent, the foresight to create, uh, you know, a governing body. And, uh, I feel the responsibility to make sure that, you know, in the next at least 10 years um, that I help push that, you know, pass that baton farther and push the, you know, the definition of what we should be doing for the game to a new level. Mm-hmm. With a, you know, kind of pushing it in a direction, obviously there's a lot of things. Golf's in a boom right now. It's more popular than ever. So what are the big issues that obviously you're just getting your feet wet? Your first year on the job and, you know, what are the big you know, kind of issues that are coming across your desk as as of now? Like, what are the kind of the things that you've focused on in, in your first few months? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd love to, I mean, that's a, that's an answer that could take a while, but um, I think I could probably build it under a few key categories. It's um, uh, what I'm asking all of us to do with the USGA is to, uh, 
is to assess our championships and make sure they're at least as strong as they were 20 years ago and show me a plan to make sure that we believe they'll be even stronger 20 years from now. I don't think we want to take our, um, our national championships as a given. I think we want to continue to push ourselves and make sure we're, we're pushing that, whether that's where we play, purses, television coverage, fan experience. I think, um, I think we've got to keep asking ourselves, you know, wherever we thought we were in 1985 or, or 2005, are we going to be there in 2035? So we spent a lot of time on, on championships. Um, I think we t- spent a lot of time on the topics of uniting the game, whether that's course ratings, world handicapping system, gins, all things we can do to make sure that players around the world can really get connected to this game. The other thing that I've spent more time on than I really thought I would spend time on is, is how are we being an efficient and effective partner uh, in the game and for these courses. You know, we have an incredible agronomy program, an incredibly green section. Are we making that accessible to everybody? How can we take that to the next level? How can we make sure we're providing help? At some courses, maybe Chicago Golf Club doesn't need our help, but maybe Springbrook does. And are we available to that? I only use Springbrook because it's my hometown growing up course. But, but you know, is the USGA being the kind of partner it needs to be across the board? And so I'm new, of course, and I'm just kind of looking at those things saying, I want to make sure that, I always say that the USGA is like the role player in a basketball team. I don't care if tonight you need me to set picks, guard their best score or be the best score. Let's agree that we'll be whatever it takes and whatever topic. So I think a lot of times, um, a lot of times big corporations like the USJ think they always have to be at the front of the parade. They have to be leading the initiative. I don't feel that at all. I feel like if, uh, if Jay's going to lead drive, chip, and putt, how can we help? If Augusta's going to lead or lead drive, chip, and putt, how can we help? If Jay's going to lead first D, how can we help? If Seth is onto something at the PGA with regards to junior, junior league, how do we get involved and help push that? We don't always have to be at the front of the parade. Sometimes we just have to be supporting the parade. And, um, I think there's so many good ideas in the game that we don't, um, I, th- I feel like sometime at the USJ, we we almost are uh, ashamed that all we did is wrote a check to somebody. Well, sometimes that's all that somebody needed was a check. Sometimes they need us to actually take a much bigger role. And I, I don't want to be the kind of role. I want to be the kind of role player that said whatever golf needed, the USJ was a trusted partner that could be there for them. And sometimes that means we're going to have to be in the front and at the microphone talking about what's next. And sometimes we'll be, we'll be just one in the crowd helping them get there. But I, but I think the, the game needs to count on us to be a partner where we're needed. It sounds almost like uh, parenting. <laughs> Maybe, although parenting sometimes I feel like uh, uh, I feel like we have to do more of the scolding, and I think in this case we have to do more of the supporting. You know, it's maybe parenting once your kids get to college. Yeah, I, you know that you, your answer brought up a topic that I was interested in talking about a little bit. It was it was what's the USGA's role kind of in supporting municipal golf? Um, obviously, we've seen varying levels of support from the USGA over the years from, you know, you look at the Bethpage Black situation where that was, you know, fully involved getting one of the great municipal facilities that in, in the United States restored and, you know, bringing a championship there. And, and obviously with Torrey Pines this year, that was the last, uh, you know, championship golf uh, event on, you know, big time championship golf scheduled for municipal golf. And, and I think that's obviously the most obvious and visible USGA municipal golf role, you know, kind of collaboration. But I'm interested in how do you view USGA, uh, the USGA and supporting municipal golf, which is so much so fundamental and where people get the start in the game? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to say something here that I don't normally say, and you'll get a kick out of this, but I don't, I don't normally say if at all, I've got a lot to 
learn in that area because usually I think I've, of course, got all the answers. But I do have a lot to learn in that area. What I, what I would tell you is I think we spend too much time talking about championships when we talk about different venues and not enough time talking about what do they need period because the championship is one golf course and it's one moment but you know we've got you know we've got thousands of golf courses that we need to figure out how to become a better partner to and what i've learned if nothing else in 60 days is there's not a one size fits all when it comes to venue support when it comes to really being a partner to golf courses some of them need agronomy help some of them want to really talk to the green section some of them need need you know need uh, guidance on how to run their own championships um some of us need membership growth or gin support or how can we do a better rating so um what i think we've got to figure out a way to do is, is how do we become a better consultant to the golf courses that want it and need it? And some don't need us at all. And I think we got to get over ourselves that if some don't need us at all, that's just fine. We don't have to be everybody's answer. So um, I really don't know yet. I've just, I just funny. I was just talking to somebody before you walked in and I said, um, I can promise you in six or seven months, you're going to hear about um, Mike Wan's big, bold leadership initiatives. I don't know what they're going to be yet, but there's going to be four or five things that I'm going to lay on the table and say, in the next five to 10 years, we're going to get there. I'm not exactly sure what those, what those, what those initiatives are, but that's kind of what I've always done. I mean, when I got to the LPJ, I think one year in, I said, we're going to get this, we're going to get the future golf to 50, 50 men and women. At the time, I think it was, I don't know, 20% of, of junior golf was women. It's, you know, close to, it's almost 40% now. So I didn't get there, but I'm not, I'm not ashamed of the fact that I threw it on the table, made us challenge ourselves. I want to have some big, bold initiatives of what we're going to do as the USGA. What, what are we going to sign up for? And over the next 15 to 30 years, not willing to back down on. And, um, I've got my head around three or four of them. I'm just not ready to go public yet. But when we get there, there's, um, there's got to be a few things as a, as a leader in the sport, we've got to be the one who wakes up every day and says 30 years from now we're going to get here because i don't think everybody else can spend time thinking about 30 years from now they got members to serve and things to generate this quarter or this month or this year but i want to be the one that says in 30 years here's where we're going to get we're going to help golf get to and then not be willing to back down over the next 30 and um getting those right and getting my members my volunteers and my board to get behind those i think is really um is really my job it's it's got to be an interesting transition. Obviously, you were wildly successful with um, you know your leadership at the LPGA. I think you know where LPGA is today. Obviously, it helped you know television, uh, more television exposure, and highlighting the great players on the LPGA tour has has brought new popularity to the sport. You know, having that being probably was a little bit easier of a problem in the sense of it was it was so it's the LPGA and we're going to focus on our core product with the USGA you've got so many different areas of the game of golf it's really it encompasses all of golf and then also a lot more people that you know you collaborate with within it beyond you know just whether it be sponsors tournament organizers and uh you know venues and players you have you know every you have you have all of those as well as many other people that you work with how is the you know kind of determining those key fundamental priorities is it is it been a little bit more difficult than say the LPGA or is it you know how do you go about that process yeah um they, they are different but i would tell you that one thing is completely true you'll never show me a really successful business or brand that was pretty good on a bunch of stuff. 
they're great on a few things. And to be great at a few things, you have to say no at a bunch of other stuff. And, um, and I think that'll be, a, that'll be a challenge for me in this job. I mean, I think, I think sometimes the USJ wants to be able to say, yes, we did, no matter what the question was. Yes, we did a little bit there. And we did a little bit there. We wrote a check to them. We, we helped them on such and such. And I'd rather say, no, we didn't a few times to be really great at a few things. And I think, um, and I think that's, you know, that's feasible. The good news for me is there's so many people in the golf industry, so many organizations and leaders that have taken a big, active and successful role in parts of the business that I don't need to go solve. I don't need to, you know, try to get my face on that poster. That's working out all by itself. So I think the big challenge with the USJ, and this is what I was talking about before, is I'm going to figure out the five or six things that we will not fail at. And unfortunately, when you think of, when you hear those five or six things, you'll probably go, yeah, that sounds right. And then you'll want to naturally go, but what about, and you'll rattle off six or seven more. Just know if they weren't in those five or six, I'm probably not going to spend a lot of time, at least my personal time on those other things. If we're going to succeed, we're going to be great at five or six things. And we're not going to be willing to fail at those five or six things. And yeah, that means we're probably not going to be, we're not going to be involved in a bunch of others. Um, but um, I think golf uh, golf needs that. It's what's achievable. And that formula is almost identical to what we did at the LPGA. That makes sense. It's like the maniacal focus more so, you know, it's so easy to get scatterbrained and, and chase a bunch of different things. And when you do a bunch of things, you never, it's like the restaurant with 200 things on the menu. It's like, <laughs> what's, what's it? if you want to be great at 20 things, go be great at four. And then be great at four more and then be great at four more. Don't try to be great at 20 in the beginning. So I think at the USJ, we've got to decide what are the four or five or six things we're going to hang on the board. We are not going to back down from. And as we start knocking those off, fine, hang another couple things on the board, but don't start with 20. So uh, obviously, in terms of championship, we just talked about how we talk too much about championships, but you know, <laughs> Here we we're going to talk about championships. <laughs> okay, got it. Um, we, uh, you guys, a big announcement a couple of weeks ago with the uh, anchor sites of uh, Marion and Oakmont, partnership with Pennsylvania. Uh, what, what do the you know anchor sites provide you guys? And I feel like everybody wants to call it a rota, but you know, you guys have very much shied away from the rota term that <laughs> that RNA uses. How is it different than the than a rota. Well, first off, you know, we're, we're not talking about going, you know, going somewhere uh, forever. And we're also not talking about it like a, st a standard series of years. Um, what I would say is what people have misread in the, in the anchor site pieces in these cases, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, we have, uh, we've been able to say to both sites and States, if we bring it, can, can we get behind it? In other words, what happens almost every time is you finish a championship with somebody and they'd say, you know what would have been nice here if we could have put villas down the left side of this thing, or it would have been great if we would have had plumbing back at the barn because we could have turned the barn into a, everybody knows after they run a championship, the thing they wish they could have done, but you can't go do that without kind of guaranteed knowledge of revenue in the future. So when we can sit across the table and talk to a Pinehurst or talk to an Oakmont or a Marion or, or Saucon Valley and say, you know, if you know we're coming, you know, numerous times in the next 20 years, what can we go do together? What can we build to make sure these championships are better? Because usually, usually you can't go build, even if you're, even if you're Oakmont and you don't know the USGA is coming back, you can have some grand plan, but how do you go out and really invest in that if you don't think there's revenue to come behind that investment? So I really feel like what's the benefit of these anchor sites isn't that to know we're playing there in seven years or we're playing an amateur there in 14 years. It's knowing what these sites and these cities and states can do and in investing in these places. 
knowing that they're going to bring this level of, of excitement, beds and heads, fans, television revenue. It, um, it allows them to invest in a property. And when they invest in a property, we can create a better championship for our players, a better championship for our TV partners. And most importantly, we can create a better championship for our fans. So the real, the guarantee of us coming creates investment in, uh, in the properties and in the States that we wouldn't get otherwise. We could just say in, you know, we came here and we'll, and we may come back again later, but this is going to, you're going to see real investments in these properties that came out of the knowledge of knowing that we were coming back. In a way, you know, when you were describing that, it made me think of Augusta National and what they're able to do with the Masters and ANWA and because they know it's coming back every single year. So they're able to make investments, improve. They can look at something and say, hey, this didn't work. The spectator flow didn't work here. And all of a sudden it's fixed next year. Their their merchandise tents are, are, you know, seamless places because they know every year and year out. And what you're doing is, you know, as opposed to it being just an unfamiliar house that you're hosting a party in, you're going back to those houses regularly in a way. Yeah. I would tell you this, that the majority of the U.S. Open, U.S. Women's Open, U.S. Amateur sites will not be tied to an anchor site. But we will have a small minority that that are. And because of that, exact your point is exactly right. These championships will look at a championship and say, how do we invest in the next one? Because we know there isn't that we know there is a next one. And whether you're talking about North Carolina and the investment we're making together in our test facility and consumer facility and therefore the champions, or whether you're talking about Oakmont and Marion, where we can make investments to make the you know, make the actual championship better. I think you'll hear about another anchor site or two in the years to come, but you won't hear about five or six more mm-hmm. so you know you opening that door and <laughs> as a midwestern or midwesterner i think everybody in the midwest looks around and sees east coast and you can't tell me that pittsburgh's midwest uh, as as somebody from chicago that's just i've never ever thought that you know even though some people contend that it is you see west coast anchor sites in the PGA move to the May, to May is really limited major championship golf in the Midwest. So can we potentially expect to see some sort of Midwest anchor site? Uh, anchor site, I don't know. Championships, yes. Uh, I mean, I fully intend that we'll, we'll see championships come, uh, come through Chicago and the Midwest. I mean, I would consider Pittsburgh, but I get it. I uh, would come through the Midwest, but, uh, anchor sites are, are, are bigger entities. It's more than just a club. It's a club. It's a County. It's a city. It's a state. Um, I don't know if there's, if there's appetite for that. Uh, maybe. Um, but I, uh, but like I said, I'm, we're not in a hurry to roll out more anchor sites. Um, we're, you know, at the end of the day, these anchor sites will be few and far between, um, but they will create uh, they will create some continuity and some investment that'll be great. But I don't want to wake up in three years to your roto comment and go, well, I know what thirty through forty three is, and there's no room in there for us to introduce other sites, important sites, one offs. I mean, there's a lot of great uh, clubs that would like to do this once or maybe twice, but they don't want to do it every ten years. They don't want to do it every eight years, and I don't want to cross them off because they weren't part of some anchor agreement. Yeah, it's it's an interesting strategy because obviously when you have them planned out, you it creates leverage and scarcity, but you also never know what's going to happen. Say say one year, or somebody might decide they want something, so you want to have 
some availability. It's got you kind of almost want to have a table or two available in case a celebrity comes in your restaurant, right? Yeah, and I would tell you, I'm, I'm without any hesitation, and I'm not I'm not BSing you. There is no uh, anchor sites were not designed to create scarcity and therefore higher demand. If it works out that way, I mean, I'm saying that we didn't sit down and go, you know what, we, we could do if we could just lock up a couple of dates every decade. That would just mean two less slots for everybody else. Um, anchor sites came out of the fact that if we could if we could really get long term thinking, long term investment. Um, in some of the markets that we know we'd come back to anyway, it would be great if we could. And then it led to look what it turned into. But um, it wasn't designed to have you know fewer opportunities. Um, and like I said, we'll be fully committed to making sure that there are there are one offs and there are regular stops that are or aren't tied to anchor sites. We're never going to find ourselves waking up going, "Geez, we'd love to really do you know, a championship there," but anchor sites have nine of ten years locked up. That that won't be part of our future. With, with all the championships, there, I mean, there's so many to choose from. I, I'm just curious: is is there one that you have highlighted in your in your head as this is the championship I'm I'm most looking forward to in the next couple of years? Um, no, there isn't. I mean, there's. I mean, I'd be honest with you: there's one or two that aren't on the docket that I'd be most looking forward to getting over the over the hump. Um, but you know, the cool thing to me is, I mean, I've I've been floored with uh, you know when you. This summer, I've been going to all the different championships. And yeah, you know, uh, the country club in Boston is going to be unbelievable. I haven't been there in, you know, 30 years. Um, and I can't wait to, you know, I can't, you know, I'm going to start lying down the list. I mean, am I excited about LACC? I am, you know, I've played LACC a few times. I lived out in California for a while and I know that it won't always, it won't just be a great championship for the athletes and for the sponsors that'll be there, but there'll be people in LA that probably never even seen inside, inside that gates that'll walk in as fans and, and see a great piece of property. So I'm excited about that. But, but the, the best part about this whole USGA experience that I've had just this summer is every time I get in a plane and get off and get off a plane, I'm experiencing a country club or a, or a golf venue that, that I've heard about, read about, but never been to, and they just don't disappoint. With the with the events that you attended this year, do you have like a, a favorite moment or favorite story from from one of the events that uh, you know? Obviously, that had to be a very cool experience this summer. I'd never been to a U.S. Uh, a U.S. Girls Junior before, and um, when I walked onto the U.S. Ju- uh, girls Junior, there was a young girl, you know, Caroline uh, Caroline Tuttle, who played in my home was was a member of my home course in Orlando. And um, I just saw her on the range. I walked in, I saw that that's Caroline and I've got a thousand nicknames for her and I uh, saw her and her dad standing there. And to me to stand there on the range and talk to the two of them and then to realize what this championship meant to, now this is a young girl who's qualified for the U S women's open played at the Olympic. I saw her at Olympic, you know, so you'd think that would be an even bigger moment for me this summer, but um, you just realize how much these USGA championships mean to somebody's amateur career and then pro careers. I mean, they're just, you know, there's, there's places that they play, and then there's a USGA championship, and it's um, it was special for me to talk to. I like her, I like her dad, I feel their their family, and for them to say, you know, this was the thing we built our summer around, getting here to Baltimore. This is where we wanted to. This is where we wanted to play, and I and I'd seen her at Olympic, you know, months earlier, but she I don't think she expected to qualify for that. But it's just it just reminds you that what you're doing matter at every age, you know. Um, to see um, to see a lot of my really good friends at Brooklawn, you know, for the U.S. senior women's. I mean, this is, you know, just to sit there and talk to LPJ greats and then have them just say over and over again how much they appreciate what the USGA was doing for them and to create this championship. Those are, that's special. You know, I always tell people, why work this hard if nobody cares? And in these cases, I really met athletes that cared. 
I think that's one of the neat things with with golf in general, um, and especially the USGA, as as somebody that you know spent their whole a lot of their life, you know, chasing USGA tournament, trying to get in, and uh, is the lower level tournaments like there there aren't a lot of other sports like the NBA doesn't have amateur basketball championships. Right. Like, you know, there's nowhere for 25 or 28 year old, uh, mid am basketball players to go compete on a national stage. And I think that's one of the things is that I would, you know, say to a lot of people is like, those are some of the most fun championships to attend. Like I, the most fun I've had attending an event in the last five years was the inaugural senior women's open here yeah. where, you know, you're out of this incredible golf course and you're seeing it. It's just, there's a different energy at these, at the lower level events, even than the, you know, the big men's open or women's open. And I would say the women's open has a different energy than the men's open. And it's, it's worth exploring because like being able to walk without the ropes around, I mean, it is a, you know, I think those lower level USGA events don't get as much attention or love as they deserve because they are so neat. You know, even the big ones, I would tell you that when I came back from, uh, from the U S open, um, in Torrey, and I did an interview the next morning. I was the next morning. And of course, they wanted to talk about Rom, and it was unbelievable. It was a great week. But somebody said, What was the moment you most remember about that week? And I said, um, I said, the amateur dinner, which I think was like on a Tuesday or Wednesday night. Now, we couldn't do a dinner this year because of COVID. So, and it was outside and it was drinks, but it was, um, uh, I think it was Andy North gave a little talk about, you know, what it meant. And I ended up over the course of the night, I met every amateur in the field. And, you know, these were young men that were in the absolute pinnacle of their career. It's funny, as commissioner of the LPJ, when I rolled into the U.S. Open and the U.S. Women's Open, my thinking was, we really ought to have more LPJ and PGA Tour members exempt into these fields and fewer open slots. Because, I mean, you know, just these open slots don't turn into after the cut and wins and everything else. And after going to both and really getting into the into the process of qualifying, I realized that the U.S. Open, the U.S. Women's Open are the most open championship in the world, right? I mean, if, if you got, if you, if you got a low enough handicap and you can get the ball in the hole, you can play in the U S open. And I mean, to your point before, I mean, I don't care how great your summer was. You're not going to be invited to play in the NBA championship. Like there's just, it just doesn't matter how many shots you hit down in your neighborhood, in your neighborhood pickup game. But if you're, if you have that kind of summer and you can find your way, you might just, you might just tee it up at the U S women's open and finally the word open meant more to me. I mean, I would throw the open word around pretty easily at the LPGA, but then when you get here and you really look at what it took to get here and the qualifiers from all over the world, it's, um, it's one of the things that really makes it special because it's the most open professional and amateur championships in the world. And, um, they're purely non-discriminatory. The ball doesn't care what you look like, how old you are, where you came from. If you can get in the ball in the, in the hole with least number of strokes, you're going to be playing in one of the greatest championships in the world. So I'd be remiss here if I uh, if I didn't talk about you know the the hottest topic in golf, obviously. But you you, know. you're the best I've ever been interviewed with in my first sixty days in terms of how long it took you to get to this. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, usually the over under is about a minute and a half. I want everybody to listen to the other part of the interview. So, <laughs> so when you when you actually edit this, this is going to be the first question you asked, right? No, no, no. We, we put it at the back because right, everybody's right, got to right. listen. You got to force them through all the stuff. <laughs> exactly, okay, good. Exactly. Um, Something I, uh, I, I'm always, I've interested in, I see this word thrown around a ton and I've never really understood who stakeholders 
means. So, you know, you see with the distance debate, it's like, oh, we're going to talk with stakeholders. Like, who are stakeholders? You know, yeah. you know, like what what level does it go down to? You know, obviously, I think everybody just assumes equipment manufacturers and PGA Tour players and LPGA players. Uh, but like what who are the stakeholders? Yeah. So I mean, when I talk stakeholders, I talk about entities in the game that both lead and push the game forward uh, and have a lot to gain or lose from the decisions we make. So, you know, you're, you're right. I mean, it's, it's, it's equipment manufacturers. It's, it's the tours, it's tour players. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's golf course venues. So it's, um, I think it's important that, um, I think in this role, I've said this many times, in this role, I'm going to have to lead in a huddle. I'm going to have to bring the huddle together. I'm going to have to listen to the comments. And at the end of the day, someone's going to have to make a call, make a play. But I really think it's important that we actually lead via via the huddle. That doesn't make it easy. Um, it doesn't necessarily always make it, make it popular. But I do think there's a, there's a lot about this game that I think goes unnoticed from the average fan. And what I mean by that is, and this is me and my soapbox, but I would just tell you there's um I don't think I could be the head of the of the National Croquet Association or the head of the National Darts Association or 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 the bowling Bowlers of America Association because I'm not really sure that there's enough stakeholders in there that really move the game forward. When we when we announce a championship in golf, 30% of the advertising is gone already from manufacturers and supporters of the game that want to be part of that. You don't get that in tennis. You don't turn on the U.S. Open tennis tournament and see all the ads from golf, from, from, uh, from tennis balls and tennis rackets. And it just isn't there, but it's there in golf. And I don't think you can, I don't think you can blow that off. I think one of the things that makes golf exciting is how much research is spent in this game. So when somebody says to me, well, that's easy. Just, have a tour ball, shut down everybody on a distance, and that's the new game. I mean, that's fine. But I think my job is really to make sure that there's as much energy about the future of this game uh, three years from now that there is today and 20 years from now that there is today. And I want I want engineers to wake up every morning and say, I see the rules that he put in place, but I'm going to spend a lot of hours today working on how to make, how to get excitement even within that space. I can't, I can't throw a wet blanket over that, or I think I'll lose one of the things that makes this game truly exciting and great. If I see a club under the Christmas, if I see a, 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 a package under the Christmas tree that looks like a golf club, I'm just like anybody else. I get pretty excited about ripping it open because maybe there's, maybe there's two strokes of handicap in that box. And I don't want to, I don't want to lose that. I don't want to lose that excitement. An interesting thing with the history of the game is that, uh, and this is with a lot of innovation in society is that when, restrictions are placed on engineers, innovators, that's when the most creativity comes out. And obviously, like I think one of them, if you go back to is like the when the the Haskell ball came out, there was obviously a lot of debate and then they got rules and specifications placed and then they came out with a better ball like the week after they put the rules in um, that fit all the specs. So I think obviously, I think that's one thing I always think about is that history is going to repeat itself. If you put regulation in, people are going to innovate regardless. That's their job, right? Um, One question I would have centered around that is like, how do you manage people's financial? Obviously, I think this is where a lot of purists would come from is the manufacturers, different entities' financial interests with their feedback around centered around the you know future of the game and sustainability. Yeah, I, I don't know that everybody I talk to 
um, loses a lot of sleep about whether or not golf will be better 50 years from now than it is today. And I get that. I mean, that's not everybody's job, right? Some people have a job to hit a quarter. Some people have a job to get members paid. Some people have a job to, you know, to get, to get events on the schedule. I've had those different jobs as well, but I think I'm one of the few that, that, you know, that drives to work every morning thinking about whether or not golf's going to be better in 30 or 40 or 50 years than it is today. And, um, and I think that's, that's our responsibility. I mean, that's our job to be, to be that voice. Um, I do know that as, you know, we have a ton, ton of roles at the, at the USGA, whether that role is rules, whether that role is championships, whether that role is green section and agronomy, or whether that role is being a cop, you know, and sometimes we have to be like the traffic cop and say, this is how fast you can drive on this highway. It doesn't, doesn't mean you love the cop, but it also means that, you know, with that cop, at least you get order and, and, and lack of chaos and, and, a, and a belief in sort of the future. So I'm not going to back off the responsibility. In some cases, we'll have to be a traffic cop and say how far, how fast. But I also don't think the way to get there is to just to say innovation out. Here's the new, here's the new ball. Everybody plays it and, or here's the new club and everybody plays it or here's the new rule and, and there's no way around it. I quite frankly, uh, I, when you said, don't you think history is going to repeat itself? I do. I think we're going to establish some guidelines. I think those guidelines are probably going to slow some of the pace of, of progress over the next 10 or 20 years. But are we going to figure ways around that to actually continue to push the envelope? I'm actually counting on it. Because I think the, that's what makes the game exciting. I also think that I have a responsibility to make sure that when you look at that over the next 50 years, the decisions we made to actually control some of that pace didn't obsolete every game in the, you know, every, every course in the country didn't make courses west of the Mississippi no longer an option because that's when you wake up and say, whatever happened to dot, 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 fill in the sport because they didn't really care about the next 40 years. They only cared about today. So finding that right balance is, uh, is important. I'm going to work hard to find that balance, whether or not we'll strike it exactly right. I don't know, but we, but we can't shy away from the, from the responsibility that, that we have that, quite frankly, nobody else really shares. Is there, uh, can we, uh, you know, obviously everybody <laughs> sits and talks about this. This is an endless debate. If you bring it up on social media, you'll be filled <laughs> with, you know, you'll be talking about it for a week. But, you know, is there any imminent, like, when can we expect maybe something about, the, obviously the distance report came out and we're in this evaluation period. When can we expect to see something from this evaluation period? Yeah, I think I think at this time next year, I think ne- next summer we'll be talking about some real specific suggestions, recommendations, and be going through the same process. We were in, in the beginning we would put out the distance uh, results. We then talked about you know some of the areas we want to look at. We've listened to feedback. I think you know come this off season we'll take all that feedback in and try to determine some specific directions, and then we'll do the same thing. We'll put it out there and and let people feedback. I don't expect everyone to say, Mike, USJ, great job. Because like I said, being a traffic cop sometimes isn't the greatest. But I think at this time next summer, we'll be having an interview and you'll be saying, tell me about point number four. And that's what we'll be talking about. I mean, no, nobody likes change. You know, that's, that's <laughs> Everybody likes change. They just don't want change in their game. Please change somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's an interesting, I think like the whole thing, everybody's got bias. Like I, I love classic golf courses, so I I'm biased. I know that like I write about classic golf courses. I don't want them to be, you know, extinct. One of the things I've always found interesting is that there's one stakeholder that has huge financial gain to be made from a distance, the distance to keep exploding. And they're golf course architects and they're vehemently <laughs> opposed to the distance, which is like amazing to me because like, Okay, if the golf ball keeps going further 
and the, the clubs keep getting better, they're going to have to keep building more back tees and keep adjusting golf courses and keep making more money. But they're the group that always is vehemently opposed to this whole thing. And it's just something that I always like find I chuckle about. Are they a stakeholder? Well, I think the bottom line is when you talk about great golf course architecture, it's no different than, uh, you know, than great artists. I mean, when you finish, when you finish the painting, you don't want to be, you don't want the painting to be obsolete again in 20 years just because, because nobody cared about the painting 20 years ago. So I think, I think it's one thing to say, I'm going to add back tees, but I've not met a a golf course architect who says, yeah, just put a tee back there 50 yards. I'm good. Cause that's not what the original vision was or the original design. So I think they're a stakeholder that's hoping that we protect some of the original vision of these great venues that they created. But there's a, you know, there is there is a compromise here that we'll that we'll find. You know, it won't it won't be overnight and it won't be easy, but we'll find a compromise that says, listen, and at the end of the day, I still want long hitters to be long hitters. I still want them to have an advantage versus a short hitter. I want them to, you know, but if they go for it in two, to have risks that maybe the guy who laid up doesn't have, that's part of the game. So, I mean, I think the people that think we're going to wind everything back and, you know, everybody's going to be the same 195 yards off the tee, come on, that's not realistic. And I don't think, I don't think we want to take athleticism and strength and figuring out a way to swing the club harder if you can do it and keep it in the fairway out of the game. So we're, you know, long hitters are going to be long hitters, difference makers on tours and different makers in your home club are still going to have those advantages. But I think if we just turn the other cheek and say, ah, nothing wrong with this game, the people who say that to me don't really care about golf 40 years from now. They just, please don't touch my game. Please don't touch my course. Please don't touch my tour. I get that. But I think if if that's the answer, I think there's a real risk that 40 years from now they're going to say, I, I've said this many times, you can make a critique on the RNA and the USGA that said, um, why have you waited this long to take a look at this? And I think that's a fair critique. But should you be looking at it? Uh, that's 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 not even a realistic critique. Of course, our job is to make sure we keep the game as good as it was 30 years from now, if not better than it was today. And not paying attention is not an answer. Well, especially with what's going on globally with with environmental concerns and sustainability. You look around the around the world and around the country. It's like golf courses take a lot of resources, and you do not want them to take more resources because that is something that you know puts the game at jeopardy. Yeah, and I don't want to go down the whole global warming path, but let's face it, when when a golf course has to get that long, it's expensive. It's expensive to maintain. If you think as a golfing population, we're not paying for that, you're kidding yourself in terms of fees and country club expenses and everything else. More importantly, do you think there'll ever be an urban golf course built again if it needs 8,600 yards to build a golf course? And and people say to me, well, you don't need 86 unless you're, unless you're building a golf course for the top elite. But I've never met somebody who's got a plan to build a golf course who doesn't want to have a course that could host major championships. So, I mean, I just don't think we want to make this game only a suburb game, you know, only a, only a game for the wealthy. So again, that's, that's how you wake up and go, whatever happened to. So, um, Listen, there's no there's no single magic bullet, at least not yet. But uh, we're certainly going to come with some suggestions that I think at a minimum can continue to have excitement, can continue to have innovation, at the same time protect the fact that, you know, we, we want to make sure that our golfing venues can be our golfing venues in the future. And quite frankly, the only way to get to a golfing venue can't be to drive two hours into the country. So outside of this whole uh, distance debate coming to some resolution, what are you most looking forward to in the uh, in the coming years as uh, as the CEO? Actually, I know it sounds crazy to say this, but I'm looking forward to this challenge because this challenge will require us to bring the industry together, even in ways where we don't like each other. But at least, you know, to me, it's um, 
like I said, I think it's a fair critique to say, where have you been? But I think it's be a much fairer critique if in three years you go, seriously, you did nothing. So, I mean, I think that's, uh, I'm looking forward to figuring out how to do that with and for the industry. And, and, uh, and again, letting half the people tell me I'm crazy and half the people not. I mean, that, that's like being a commissioner. You get right. used to that. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you've got the job that nobody's ever going to be happy with you, you know? <laughs> right. It's perfect. It's just, uh, but so I think that'll be fun. I think, I think it'll be, uh, to me, it's exciting as a, I've pretty much been a global guy my whole career and I've been, I was about taking brands global, whether it was TaylorMade and Adidas and, you know, the LPGA or Crest Toothpaste. But this is a time when I can really be an American, you know, and really focus on some of the things. And I've said this many times, I really believe that um, I'm frustrated that there's not, you know, there, there's not Team USA. And if a young kid is growing up and has aspirations in this game anywhere else in the world, they're going to find themselves on Team Sweden or Team New Zealand or Team Australia, not here in America. I think, I think we can solve that. And I think the USGA ought to be at the forefront of solving that. I think that we've provided incredible resources to golf courses, but we make it maybe too hard to find them or maybe too expensive to get a part of them. I think we can solve that. I think there's, um, there is so much research not happening as it relates to water, as it relates to a golf course. Uh, I can promise you we're going to spend tens of millions of dollars in the next few years to really make sure that golf courses need half the water that they need now in the, in the long term. And I think uh, if we don't do that, who is going to do that? I think we can, uh, we can endow some of these great amateur championships if we put our mind to figuring out how to do it. So these are all things I'm trying to get my head around 60 or 90 days in, but I feel pretty comfortable by the time I get to 2022, I'm going to be laying some of these things out in terms of action plans. But all of those things to me are necessary. They're doable. And the USGA ought to take the lead on them. All right, Mike, thanks so much for the time and uh, really look forward to our next chat. And uh, congrats again on the new role. Thanks again. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode was edited by Garrett Morrison. As a quick reminder, we have the Ryder Cup coming up. The best way to stay up to date with everything in golf. It's easy. It's fun. It's for everybody. So for a golf nut, it's for a somebody that's just trying to follow golf is the Fried Egg Newsletter. You know, if you're already signed up, great. Refer a friend. We'd really appreciate it. You can sign up at thefriedegg.com. There's a bar that says newsletter right in the middle of the website. Sign up there, enter an email, and you're in. And you will get golf's best newsletter. I say that with extreme bias, obviously, but I believe it. Three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And during the Ryder Cup, we will have daily newsletters. So thefriedegg.com, sign up for the newsletter, whether you are a golf tragic or you're just trying to stay abreast. Actually, it's a good, funny story. Uh, not funny, just an interesting story. I, uh, I had an old colleague when I started the Fried Egg. She, she had just started dating a golf nut, and she told me how much she loved the Fried Egg because it gave her things to talk about with her boyfriend, now husband. And, uh, you know, she credits a lot of her early relationship to the Fried Egg newsletter. She knew nothing about golf. So that's what it can do for the common golf fan, the beginning golf fan. Sign up for the free uh, the newsletter. It's free three days a week, and you will know everything going on in the golf world. Will Nice does a wonderful job. Thank you, and we will see you next week with a couple episodes on the Ryder Cup. Thank you.